I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with your Bosa and John Ford. Today, inflation's impact on tech. What to expect from CPI tomorrow? Last month, the Nasdaq falling more than 8% in the two days following that release. This morning, the Nasdaq down slightly, but cloud and enterprise tech getting hit much harder beneath the surface. Plus, the effect on Tesla from Musk's Twitter war. We'll talk to Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas in just a moment about Tesla and Apple. And then move to exit. That is Meta's message to managers as they look to further cut costs, reduce headcount. We'll discuss what it signals for the rest of the industry, Deirdre. We're going to start with a series of price target cuts for big tech. Analysts lowering estimates store targets for Netflix, NVIDIA, AMD, Microsoft, and Apple. All just this morning for NVIDIA, it's gaming revenue that has the street worried for Netflix. It is a slowdown in streaming spend driven by macro headwinds, including inflation. And KeyBank says you should still own Apple, but they cut their price target saying the data tells us we should expect much worse than historical growth for hardware in the upcoming quarter. Uh, Guys, this all comes as we get into the thick of earnings season. And John, Carl, this is something that we have talked about in the past. There's great hopes on the cloud businesses of the three hyperscalers, John. But I wonder if this earnings season um, could be sort of a reality check. I just went through a list of some of the biggest players. You're seeing headcount cuts, cuts at startups. Is that going to weigh heavily on cloud spend? Well, I think even more important, and you're looking at those stocks we got on the screen right now, notice that Microsoft is down significantly more than the rest. And I think that might be because Microsoft's in the business of enterprise software. And, uh, you know, Bill McDermott last night on Mad Money talked to Jim uh, about macro impacts on the business, something that I've been wondering about, right? We've been talking about here uh, ever since MongoDB's earnings, where they said, yeah, we see some stuff happening in Europe. We don't think it's going to really affect our business uh, itself that much, but it's a real macro impact that's coming. Here's an echo of that. ServiceNow down 11.5% this morning. Atlassian down 8%. MongoDB down 6 You can go on down the line. Lots of enterprise software names, including Salesforce, down about 4.5% being affected, Carl. Uh, you're right, uh, John. Uh, in software, a lot of discussion about macro and McDermott was all over that last night. But also uh, the journal today talking about PC shipments down 12 in Q2. That's going to be the worst in many, many years. Jeffries with a big note about gluts in semis, John. Uh, it's very hard to get that, that the turn, that second derivative, at least in terms of some of the research today. Yeah, and this is important because enterprise software had been one of those areas in part because of you know, subscription business models out of cloud that seem to be more insulated, some people might have thought, immune to some of the macro issues as digital transformation takes place, but some of McDermott's comments laying bare that may be more insulated than immune. Mm-hmm. And looking ahead to inflation numbers tomorrow, how's that gonna affect trading and high growth tech, which includes enterprise software? Here to break it down for us, Mike Santoli. Hey, Mike. Hey, John, uh, you know, to the extent that it has been macro and Fed policy and yields that have been in part driving uh, tech valuations lower, kind of chasing people out of that sector. I'm not sure that tomorrow's CPI number is going to be the clinching argument either direction for peak inflation or no peak inflation. Although uh, we have had this you know, habit, we've been conditioned to expect higher than expected CPI numbers on the headline and yet market based expectations for inflation 
have been declining. In fact, if you look at, for example, the NASDAQ 100 has started outperforming the average S&P 500 stock in, let's say, late May, mid to late May. That's about when the, the market-based inflation expectations started to crack. I don't think it's the one swing factor. I don't think yields are the skeleton key for this, this uh, sector either. But it is the reliability of earnings in the context of what you're going to pay valuation-wise for those earnings. So that does inform the valuations. One final little tidbit is the equal-weighted S&P tech sector now trades at only 16 times forward earnings. All right. The overall tech sector is above 18. So it shows you it's the really big stocks, especially in software, that have been inflating the overall valuations. But the typical tech stock, it's much more going to be about whether the earnings are coming through, whether they are, in fact, predictable businesses than it is to me about the macro and, you know, every tick in yields. Yeah, so Mike, when we look ahead to earnings, we're seeing the cuts come in, whether that be to price targets or to guidance. We're going to get them from the companies themselves. Could that essentially serve as a kind of clearing event? Could that pave the way for the second or later half of the year, I should say? We're already in the second half to maybe, you know, better have better expectations. Or do you think that there's more shoes that are going to drop down the road? Well, I think it could be both. It's certainly part of the process. You do want to reset people's sites lower, uh, essentially no longer believe that these are kind of effortless growth machines. Uh, but you just never know uh, until you get the numbers and you see the reactions, what's priced in. I probably would have told you that people were had low expectations for Netflix going into last quarter's numbers, and it didn't seem to matter once we actually got the reality. That's a dramatic example, uh, but it can work both ways. Uh, I, I do think that is the case, and, and people have been chased out of, uh, out of tech. I think there's some good work to say that outside of the very, very largest uh, kind of favorites where there's a complacent consensus around it, uh, th that you have had people you know, essentially feel like this is not the area to be, and it's a lot less crowded than it was six or eight months ago. Uh, Mike, a point you've been making pretty consistently last few weeks. Uh, we'll talk soon. Uh, Mike Santoli. Uh, let's take a look here this morning uh, at Tesla. Since Elon Musk's uh, Twitter deal pullout, stocks down this morning has fallen more than 5% since Musk's decision to terminate the deal on Friday. In fact, Tesla has lost more than a third of its value since Musk disclosed the stake back in April versus a roughly 15% drop in the S&P. Musk has kept investors on their toes. Now the company's shutting down some of its factories in Berlin and Shanghai. Plus, our next guest thinks they're could be more competition just around the corner, noting that Apple has spent, get this, 14 times Tesla's lifetime capex and R&D just in share buybacks. What if Apple were to put some of that towards its own vehicle? Joining us this morning, Morgan Stanley's head of Global Autos and Shared Mobility Research, Adam Jonas. Adam, welcome back. Before we get to Apple, I am curious to know just generally your thoughts about uh, the Twitter uh, friction and whether or not the removal of some of that friction would allow him to focus more on Tesla? Well, Carl, I, I can't really comment on that situation, uh, but let's just say Elon Musk has a great opportunity with Tesla uh, right now. They're still in pole position and really the only major uh, auto company outside of China, at least, that can guarantee supply and the infrastructure necessary to, to make the sufficient quantities of the EVs that people need right now when the rest of the industry is struggling with that. Yeah, you've said it's all about who can guarantee the supply. That said, what was up with that chart that you put out last week regarding Apple's balance sheet? Do you think that's a pool yeah. they could potentially dip into? Oh, definitely, Carl. So the message from Eric Woodring and our Apple team is Apple's going to do a car, okay? And it's, it's going to be a game changer. There's really three things, I think, for your audience to focus on here for as to why. The, the first is 
uh, is, is the ecosystem, all right? We spend collectively about 600 billion hours inside cars globally, humanity. Apple doesn't really touch that. The second is the firepower. Again, 14, almost 15 times the, the, the amount of the buyback of Apple can you, uh, versus what Tesla spent. Can you imagine if they used even a portion of that into another vertical outside of you know, rectangles into something like healthcare or transportation? We think it's gonna happen. The team there thinks it's gonna happen. And finally, uh, just the upside, you know, it's a $10 trillion mobility market. If Apple can capture even 5% of that at two times revenues, that could add 30 or 40% to Apple. So the message is, Apple's going to do a car. It's going to take a while because they're going to go straight to autonomy. But finally, Tesla's going to get some, some real competition from someone that, that can transfer their skills and make a huge difference. Adam, I wonder, though, is Apple going to do a car like they were going to do a TV? The longer this goes without Apple coming yeah. out with anything, the more I think they're talking themselves out of it, right? Because it's one thing. If they got CarPlay software, they're like reinventing the dashboard, they're getting into other people's cars. It's another thing if they've actually got to manufacture vehicles on multiple continents, deal with the labor and union implications of that, the safety and regulation yeah. implications. If they do want to go straight to, a comp, uh, to autonomy, gosh, how complicated is that? I mean, that could be a decade or more away. John, we, we totally agree. Again, Eric... Eric Woodring and the team believe that it's straight to autonomy for Apple, okay? Uh, this is one of the hardest problems humanity's ever tried to do in terms of the complexity of putting that kind of AI on public roads. So Apple, from a technological perspective, needs to curate, needs to get eyes on the car, maybe a 10 or 12 or who knows whatever passive optical system working with other car companies that have their brand on the car, not Apple, expanding CarPlay into other parts of the car like they showed at their worldwide development conference to train a neural network and then allowing that regulatory environment to curate too. Both of those, we'd agree, you're gonna take more than 10 years. So the good news is it's a huge market opportunity uh, for, for Apple and a challenge to Tesla. But the reality is we think the way Apple's gonna do it, it's gonna take a long time. No steering wheel on this car. That steering wheel is beneath Apple. So don't you gotta <laughs> get, no you gotta get that out of your mind. Too, right? No brake pedal, is that right Adam? Absolutely not, absolutely not. You gotta imagine that the ADAS features we're going to have at the end of the decade are going to be so, so advanced. We're still going to have steering wheels in the vast majority of miles traveled. Right. You know, you think if Apple's going to get into this, they, they don't want to make a car. They want to turn your car into a mobile app store. That's the prize. That's what, that's what Waymo wants to do as well, though. Um, Adam, when you talk about the amount of spend Apple versus Tesla on development, what is Apple waiting for? If, Tesla's, if they are spending 14 times more on the buyback program, what's going to make them shift some of those dollars to their AV program if they haven't already? So we think, again, training, if you're going to go straight to autonomy, you need to cover the corner cases. You need tens of billions of miles. You have to get things wrong. You may not want to get that negative downside skew, that risk exposure if, if and when something goes wrong. Perhaps a company like Tesla, and they're dealing with this kind of day to day, when there are accidents that happen and the machines make a mistake, how do you deal with that liability? I would ask you and your audience to imagine if, you, if, if Apple or some other big tech platform trying to play Switzerland and in a position to kind of get into the OS of the car, because it's going to take 10 years anyway, what's the rush right now of having something half-baked where you could have real liability and even loss of life and expose yourself to that right now? Let someone else handle that, curate that regulatory environment, skate to where the puck is going, even if it's 2035. The opportunity is so big, 
it, it's something you can be, it might seem slow to your audience, uh, but in the grand scheme of, of, this, tech, of this tech development, uh, might be the right approach, a second mover advantage. Hey, finally, Adam, just on overall uh, the auto business, uh, you've been critical of dealers for charging above MSRP. You've talked about consumers having less, less excess cash than they did in 19. You've been watching subprime. Your colleagues today downgrade Capital One on that. Um, are, is the business in for trouble regarding uh, unit growth? Well, uh, we'd say that the business on unit growth might actually be okay because we're about uh, close to 20% below uh, normal, normal peaks. We think pricing and margin and mix might be more vulnerable. The dealers, I don't want to say we're, we're not critical of them. It's just that they are, they are char they're doing within their, the, the law what they can do. They have been benefiting from supply chain shortage, and, they've been and their GPUs are a multiple of what they've been historically. We think if the Fed is successful, that that kind of activity might mean revert. And as supply chain improves, as Chinese workers go back to work making chips and that supply chain maybe is not perfect but gets less, less tight, that those two things, Fed action and supply chain normalization, will just lead to a very significant mean reversion down for rental car company and auto dealer earnings. And we prefer the suppliers and the OEs within our coverage. All right. So if you're looking to buy a new car, wait. Uh, well, if you, it depends how bad you need it or how much money you have. <laughs> but we think that we think a year from now, uh, you, we might be talking about deflation at the car dealer. Deflation, not inflation. So... Yeah, maybe you wait a little bit if you can or buy out your yeah, lease and, yeah. and uh, wait for the supply to, to recover. Yeah, really interesting pivot if, in fact, that's where we are. Adam, as always, our thanks. Great to see you. Thanks for kicking off the hour. Adam Jonas. Take care. We're going to turn now to Meta, seeming to move forward with plans for layoffs at Facebook. In a new memo, first reported by The Information, the platform's head of engineering asking managers to report underperforming team members to HR, saying, quote, if a direct report is coasting or is a low performer, they're not who we need. They are failing this company. You cannot allow someone to be net neutral or negative for Meta. Now, those comments come after Zuckerberg told employees that he is cutting hiring this year. He had a similar tone, said he's bracing for a deeper downturn by weeding out staff unable to meet aggressive goals. Interestingly, guys, CNBC also just confirmed that Microsoft did a round of layoffs yesterday. That was relatively small, less than 1% of its workforce. It does plan more hiring, so net more hiring this year. Um, but still notable, we're seeing this happen. I know we've had a few guests in recent days. Uh, John, maybe throw some cold water on even Alphabet's plans, right? They're so connected to that digital advertising world. Can they sort of get through this without making their own cuts? Is it going to be like Microsoft where they're still net adding? Uh, yeah. We'll see. I don't know if we can call these layoffs. I mean, this is what normal business used yeah. to be like, you know, that there are some workers who you feel like aren't working out and you, you let them go and you're still hiring other people. You try to level up. I mean, Carl, this feels like it's returning to like, like the normal rules of the labor economy, just sort of like the stock market is maybe returning to the normal rules of the stock market where, hey, if you're not showing up to work, if you're not doing your job, unlike in the COVID era where, and yes, this is not, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement, but there were some kind of egregious employee behaviors that got overlooked. Uh, employers were very accommodative. Now I think some employers are feeling like, boy, there's some talented people getting laid off from startups that can't get funding, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We need to make room for those folks. Mm -hmm. Let's cut back on the lower performers because we want to hire some new people who are more excited about this company. Yeah, we got plenty of examples of actual layoffs where companies are trimming 
you know, 30, 40 percent, especially in the mortgage business. But, but John, you're right. You're talking more about employee churn, which is uh, something we'll see more of if the labor cycle continues to turn. After the break, we'll talk with the CEO of Etsy. Plus, we'll tell you a few stocks that Goldman thinks have the most upside ahead of earnings as Tech Check is just getting started. Check on Goldman Sachs top tech picks for the upcoming earnings season. They like App Levin, CrowdStrike, Datadog, IAC, and Atlassian. CrowdStrike, that's down nearly 11% on the year, which actually relatively isn't that bad for tech, but Goldman is calling them well positioned to outperform from accelerating demand. Atlassian, another name on that list, recently upgraded from neutral to buy. They see value as more companies transition from server to cloud. Overall, Goldman is bullish over the next 12 months with average price targets for S&P 500 companies in their list, implying about 20 percent upside. Carl? Let's turn uh, to a new letter out this morning signed by some of the biggest names in tech. Leaders from 500 companies, including Apple, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, calling on governors across the U.S., asking them to expand access to computer science classes in schools nationwide. Our Julia Borston has more on that story this morning. Hey, Julia. Hey, Carl, that's right. I'm joined now by Hadi Partovi, the CEO of Code.org, and Josh Silverman, the CEO of Etsy, both of whom are signatories on this letter. Hadi's Code.org led this initiative. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having us. So, Hadi, I want to start off with you. 500 leaders from tech companies to to traditional companies such as Nike, all of them signing on um, and really urging governors and educators to adopt more K through 12 coding curriculum, computer science curriculum. Why is this so important and why are you launching this now? Well, teaching computer science is important because we're living in a digital world. Everything around us is now run by technology. You know, we saw in the pandemic how much the importance of technology increased in our world. And yet our schools don't teach students how computers and how technology works, how to create software. And so only a very small percentage of our next generation is prepared with the skills for the jobs of the future, or even to just participate as as citizens in a digital world. And what's important about today's news is not only that the largest technology companies are behind this change. It's supported by almost a third of the Fortune 100 and by companies from every different sector saying that it's time for curriculum to reflect that computer science is something that every student should learn as a foundational education. So Josh, give us some perspective on why it's important for you to sign this, not only because it's a good thing for students, but what kind of impact could this have on your business and your ability to hire down the line? So this is really an issue of national competitiveness for the US economy. We have over 700,000 open job recs right now, even in this market, for people who can code. And we as a country produce about 80,000 college graduates with computer science degrees. That is a massive gap. As a result, our solution is immigration. About two-thirds of the high-skilled visas that we process for immigrants are people who can code. 
let me say that differently. Other countries are doing a great job of making computer science part of their core curriculum. And we're falling behind. Speaking personally about as a parent, uh, don't each of us want our children to have the kinds of economic opportunities in the future? And as we look forward to the future, you're either going to tell a computer what to do or be told what to do by a computer. You'd much rather be in the first bucket. Yeah, I mean, that's just such a massive gap between the 700,000 open computing jobs and 80,000 computer science graduates. Hadi, tell us exactly what you're advocating for and what kind of impact it could have on closing that gap. What we're advocating for is that computer science in schools should be part of the basic curriculum. You know, we all learn algebra or biology as part of high school or middle school. Nobody asks, are you learning it because you want to become a mathematician or a biologist? It's just part of basic education. And in the 21st century, computer science should become part of the basics of what you expect to learn as part of education. And the impact of doing that is not only the, the ability to fill the computing occupations, but recognizing that every single occupation, just being a digital citizen in the future world, is going to require this as part of basic preparedness. Uh, in what, terms of uh, what we're advocating, we're asking the governors and the education leaders of the country to take major steps to make computer science a foundational part of the core curriculum. Josh, I see challenges there, especially given what we saw happen during the pandemic where too many kids fell behind on uh, basic skills, uh, English, math, et cetera. And there are prerequisites to be able to, to do some of the advanced coding that we talk about. So to what degree does summer learning need to be a part of this uh, because you could end up with a very bifurcated uh, opportunity within education where certain kids who are already doing pretty well also get computer science education. Others uh, don't, and there's no bridge between the two. It's a, it's a great point. And in fact, uh, lots of people from lots of different places can be really good at coding. I, I'm the chairman of something called codenation.org, and we go into under-resourced schools during the school day and immediately after school to teach computer science. And actually, we bring people who code for a living into the classroom. And for the under-resourced students, I think it's particularly important that we're doing this during the school day in the public school. It's so critical that it really deserves to have that space and time. If we leave it for summer programs or after-school programs, I'm afraid we'd leave out a lot of people who most need it. And, and, and just to put some data around that, the average income for a family of four in the schools we serve at Code Nation is $46,000 a year. For students who complete uh, the second year of our program, two thirds of them are either majoring in STEM or working in STEM, where the average starting salaries are $85,000 a year or higher, meaning that they've single-handedly doubled their family's income just by um, entering a STEM field. That's something accessible to lots of people. When we think about powering our economy forward and when we think about economic opportunity and income uh, disparities and creating more uh, equity, uh, racial equity, uh, this is a, a very clear thing we can do. There, there's so many problems in the world right now that feel really hard to solve. This one's not that complicated. Give computer science education uh, to every public school student and we can make tons of progress. Josh, what you're talking about right now is a very big picture solution, though, to a problem, well, though you say it is not hard to solve, it's still a very big issue. Give us a more narrow window into what's going on at Etsy right now. We've talked a lot about the job market, unemployment numbers. Are you hiring right now? And is hiring a challenge because some of these issues you've just laid out? So we've been disciplined uh, about our hiring uh, 
you know, all along. And Etsy's obviously seen tremendous growth through the pandemic, and we're really proud of that. Markets go through cycles. And, you know, we're here to talk about computer science education. I don't want to spend too much time on Etsy in particular, but I will say across the sector, you know, you've been talking just now about the job market in tech. And obviously it slowed down uh, broadly uh, for now, but as we look forward over the next three and five years, uh, it's hard to imagine that tech isn't gonna be a whole lot bigger uh, than it is today. And we're talking about a talent pipeline that takes years to develop, right? So it's important that we be focusing on our school system now so that our students and our economy is, is ready for the future. Uh, Hadi, question for you. When we get into specifics, right, even in this current moment, we're seeing some companies that are very specialized do better than others, part of platforms. So what would you tell students? Where should they be focusing within tech? Is that machine learning and artificial intelligence or something else? Well, at the high school level, I would just say broadly computer science, which is foundational for every student, and it covers all the aspects, whether it's computer programming, algorithms, data science, machine learning. If I was talking to a student who's uh, in college trying to choose a specialization, cybersecurity and machine learning are among the most sought after issues right now. So if you had to pick a specialization by, by middle of uh, university, cybersecurity or machine mm -hmm. learning, uh, the country is nowhere near the level of preparedness to, to compete on the national and on the global scale on those two topics. By the way, well, the other thing I want to say- a huge amount of question, demand, yeah. I was going to say there was a question Go about ahead. can students do this because of the, the digital divide and the learning gap in, in learning math. And the reality is students should learn computer science before they learn advanced math. Uh, it, studies now show that students who learn coding and computer science outperform in their math classes because learning computer science helps build the same analytical skills. But it's more creative and it's more fun and it, and it feels more like what kids want to do because they're digital citizens themselves and they enjoy it more. Well, certainly uh, great to hear these solutions to what is a massive problem and a massive um, um, opportunity gap right now in, in filling some of those jobs. Thank you both so much for joining us, Josh Silverman and Hadi Partovi. Uh, guys, back over to you. Julia, thank you as well. Still to come, why fewer deals during Amazon Prime Day might be a good thing for Amazon shareholders. Stay with us. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. We continue to watch the market today. NASDAQ making a mid-morning comeback back in the green, but beneath the surface, uh, some names like Zscaler, Datadog, ServiceNow are down sharply, and the WCLD Cloud ETF down about 3%. In just a minute, we'll have more on what Amazon's Prime Day may mean for the stock, but first, a news update with our Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Hey, Carl. Good morning to you. The new BA5 COVID variant is rapidly spreading around the U.S., but does not appear to be associated with more severe symptoms compared to the most recent subvariants. That, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, speaking at a White House COVID briefing this morning. But at the same time, the seven-day average of COVID hospital admissions has doubled since early May. Elon Musk says he doesn't hate Donald Trump, but the former president is too old to run in 2024, and he should, quote, hang up his hat and sail into the sunset, unquote. 
Musk also called on Democrats to, in his words, call off the attack so that Trump doesn't see getting back to the White House as his only way to survive. And in Scotland, for the British Open, Tiger Woods criticizing the big money Saudi-sponsored Live Tour, which features guaranteed money for players. What is incentives to go out there and earn it in the dirt? Um, you're just getting paid a lot of money up front and playing a few events and playing 54 holes. They're trying to, you know, playing blaring music and have all these um, atmospheres that are different. I, I just don't see. Tiger likes it the old-fashioned way, Deirdre. He likes to earn it. <laughs> Bertha, thank you. Meanwhile, Amazon's Prime Day shopping event, that is now underway. This year, though, a more muted kickoff. No splashy concerts or stars, lies, stars live streaming their latest makeup line. That could actually be a bonus for investors, though, and maybe a sign of a more financially disciplined Amazon. The company has, of course, been dealing with overcapacity built up during the pandemic. It's now in cost control mode. So this year's Prime Day, it will boost third quarter sales, as it usually does. But at the same time, there are concerns about the draw of Prime Day and Prime membership growth. The holiday has been losing some momentum over the years. The market for memberships may be reaching saturation. It also, guys, got more expensive, by the way. Remember that we saw a price hike in Prime memberships earlier this year. Uh, I was perusing the site earlier. There are still deals. I mean, most of them are found for Amazon private label products. But if you're in the market for a vacuum or a hot pot, there's always those. And that is the key, John, with Amazon. Discovery still isn't great, but if you are looking to get something, that's where it kind of excels. Discovery isn't great. My goodness, what are you looking for? It's like they already, they already know me based on my buying patterns. <laughs> um, but I, I do think, Carl, that here this is another signal perhaps in this economy where it's more about reducing churn than necessarily trying to buy new members because consumers are price sensitive. So they did just uh, announce basically that they're going to add Grubhub to the mix of benefits here, which should help hold on to some people. I'm sure there will be plenty of Echo devices and you know Alexa devices and other Amazon hardware on discount, but maybe playing it safe when it comes to inventories. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, B of A took a look at how the shares act uh, leading up to Prime Days, seven times going back to 2015. Five days, three days, seven days ahead of Prime Day. The stock's up every single time. But going out after the day, five days, seven days, ten days, <laughs> it's actually down more than it's up. Uh, so fascinating. People definitely like to anticipate, but it is a bit DSL on the so news So you're thing. saying buyer's remorse news. is a thing. Not just for the stuff you buy on Amazon. Yeah, speaking of, think of the returns, right? That is another <laughs> side of this. So maybe by not going big, they can save some money on the back end there. Yeah. Meantime, speaking of e-commerce and delivery, check out shares of EV maker Canoe uh, surging this morning after agreeing to a deal to supply Walmart with 4,500 EVs. Walmart also has an option to purchase up to 10,000 units. Stock's almost doubling this morning. Still down, though, 60% since last November, to put that into context. We're back in a moment. No one's going to outrun the currency right now. And probably when you think about energy and the dislocation caused by the war in Europe and this reprioritization I'm talking about, you're going to see longer cycles in Europe. We saw that. 
But this doesn't fundamentally change the narrative that tech is the only way to cut through the crosswinds and ultimately get to the other side. That was ServiceNow CEO Bill McDermott last night warning of macro and foreign exchange crosswinds. That stock trading lower by 12% this morning. Let's keep that conversation going. Bring in another CEO in the enterprise space. Joining us now, NetApp CEO George Curian. George, good to see you. Does what Bill McDermott was saying there ring true about the impact of what's happening in Europe, longer sales cycles? He also talked about more tactical engagement from customers where maybe they're not engaged in those longer term digital transformation projects as much as they're focused on things that are going to help their business right now? I think there's always a balance, John. Good to see you between, you know, things that need to be taken care of, the urgent and the important. And we see con customers continue to balance across the two. We are certainly engaged in helping our customers build flexibility in their business models to deal with these disruptions. Now, NetApp is one of those companies, been around for a while, has uh, a well-known hardware business, has been focusing a lot more on software as well. But hardware businesses have been under this supply constraint for the past several quarters. But now we're beginning to hear more about demand headwinds because of the macro environment. W which are you more focused on now? We certainly continue to be focused on meeting all of the demand that we see. We're in the business of helping customers manage their data and use it to drive their business forward. And as you know, John, the amount of data in the world continues to be explosively large and growing at very large scale. So we're really focused on helping our clients meet their obligations by delivering as much supply as we can get. I think the second area that we are seeing good momentum in our business is the ability for our clients to also build cloud and hybrid environments and our tools for making those cloud environments more secure, more cost effective, certainly seeing a lot of uh, interest given the risk from ransomware attacks or the need for cloud cost management in these times. Okay, and to put a finer point on it though, are you seeing more shift, more volatility in the supply situation or in the demand situation? Supply has been difficult for a while. Um, is that getting more difficult, getting less difficult, or is demand shifting more quickly? It's still the big, supply is still the bigger challenge in our business. It is getting stable and incrementally better, but there's always a unique you know, component that we're working to mitigate the impact to our business. So we're hopeful. Our teams are working extraordinarily hard and uh, we're hopeful that the supply situation gets better over the next few quarters. To be clear though, George, then how does the demand picture look right now compared to that and how it has been over the last few months? The demand picture certainly, you know, it uh, varies by segment and by country. We've certainly seen some impact from the Russia situation in some parts of our European business. As we've said in our earnings calls, it's not material to our business. I think the impact will work its way through the rest of the world over the next few quarters. We continue to be able to acquire new customers to yeah. expand our 
customer footprint, especially through the use of our cloud portfolio. And within the enterprise segment itself, so far we've seen pretty steady demand. I think we continue to monitor the changing economic environment and work closely with our customers. And George, you, you guys have been pretty acquisitive on the company side as well. What is your appetite for M&A at the moment? How are valuations looking to you in public and private markets for software and cloud companies? We have a great portfolio of assets that we've acquired to accelerate the development of our cloud ops portfolio. And as we said in our past earnings call, we're going to take a pause for a few months to integrate all those acquisitions. And then we'll you know, continue to evaluate opportunities soon thereafter. We think that we've got a really good portfolio. It has expanded our total addressable market and brought us a whole slew of new customers. And we're excited about the opportunities ahead. I think we continue to see that the market, especially the private market valuations, have further room to, grow, to, to go in the correction territory. Hey, George, you know, it's, it's been suggested, go heading into earnings season, that CapEx in general, which usually is not a great place to, to be if you're in this point of the cycle, might actually be different this time because companies are going to be so hungry to reinvent and automate and uh, change their, their workflow uh, to hybrid and so forth. Does that, is that consensus? Is that a consensus view right now in your industry? I think there's no question that you've got to build technologically enabled business models, whether it is to allow people to work in you know, flexible locations to deal with rising energy costs or you know, the variety of disruptions that we see or deliver products to customers digitally to get around some of the transportation and logistics constraints. Technology, as Bill McDermott said, is one of the few ways that we see clients being able to break through this you know, complex environment. And we, we continue to work on these long-term trends with our clients. George, what's your approach finally to the labor force at NetApp? Are you scaling back? Are you freezing? Are you trying to find uh, new high-level employees perhaps that are uh, newly available in the workforce after being let go from other organizations? Listen, we've always been a disciplined manager of our business. I think in the last quarter, we delivered record profits. And so we've always been a disciplined operator where we uh, you know, prioritize our investments to the growth areas of the market. We continue to monitor the business. At the moment, we are still focused on bringing on the talent that we need. I think it's, uh, I'm hopeful that the tech uh, employee landscape gets a little bit easier to be able to bring on new talent and then retain our talent by giving them exciting projects, develop them and their careers in you know, new ways. I think that's really the focus of what we do with our workforce. All right, sounds like the labor market's still tight uh, where you are working, George. Thank you, George Curian from NetApp. Thank you. As we had to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. The Nasdaq falling back into negative territory. It's been a choppy session, though. The Dow up about 80 points. Chips, though, they are seeing some nice gains today. Micron up 3%. Don't go away. We're back after this quick break.
Let's get a gut check on the PC market. Gartner's got some new numbers for the second quarter. A 12.6% drop from 2021. That is the sharpest decline in nine years. HPQ sees the biggest drop slipping by a whopping 27.5% year on year. The only major manufacturer to see gains was Apple, up about 9% from 2021, thanks to that popular M1 chip in a lot of its computers. Pretty remarkable numbers, John, even though directionally not a terrible surprise. Yeah, uh, shipments, though, that's important. It's not sell-through, it's shipments. So inventories are in the middle. We'll see uh, whether inventories built up, and that's causing them to ship less into the channel. After the break, Peloton with some changes to its business model. The details are next. We're back in two. Peloton stock higher this morning after Monday's drop, revealing in a press release that it plans to outsource all of its manufacturing moving forward. It will expand its relationship with its Taiwanese partner, Rexon Industrial, to build its bike and tread machines. CEO Barry McCarthy saying in a statement that this move will help reduce the company's cash burden. The company reported a $196 million EBITDA loss last quarter. Guys, I had forgot how acquisitive the company was during the boom times. Precore, Tonic. Raises some questions, Carl. What happens with those companies? Remember when we were talking about just how vertical Peloton was, uh, guys, from uh, John, from the manufacturing to the servicing to the delivering, they yeah. wanted to do it all. Yeah, I still suspect that getting the hardware right is going to be a key part of this company's future. Hopefully, you know, this move uh, with Rexon allows them to have a sort of Apple-Foxconn relationship where they Whoa. do have that level of insight and control. No more rusted bikes, uh, you know, more consistent processes and lower cost yeah, of manufacturing, but we'll see. John, do they even need the hardware? I mean, a lot of folks <laughs> just use the app, right? And you can use any old treadmill, which may be the point. That's what Barry McCarthy wants to do, right? Be sort of a software-only company. Margin's better that way. Yeah, I know that's what some people think, but I think that kills their differentiation in Apple and Amazon will run them over, but we'll see. They got Cody Rigsby. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, if you missed part of the show, if you're traveling, if you're on the beach with no screen, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Tech Check podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check will be back in a moment. One more thing, and that's a no deal in buy now, pay later. BNPL companies Zip and Sezzle mutually calling off their planned merger, sending those stocks in opposite directions. We should mention both of those stocks trade in Australia and are now micro caps. Zip citing, quote, current macroeconomic and market conditions for while they're terminating the deal. Zip will, will now pay Sezzle $11 million to cover costs associated with the transaction. Both of those stocks absolutely crushed this year, more than 90% off of the highs D as um, yeah. it just takes us back to some of the risks that were being telegraphed regarding buy now, pay later, I don't know, last summer? Yeah, they, they kind of missed the peak, right, when some of the other bigger companies like Block were looking for players. Um, down 90%, though, John, that is, that is really just brutal. Yeah, you mentioned it. Afterpay, Square, now Block, paid $29 billion for that. Wow, that was a peak. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a high price tag. Meanwhile, guys, um, I just got a hold of a letter that delivery startup GoPuff sent to its investors telling them that they're going to be focusing on profitability. The company is going to be cutting 10% of its staff and shutting 
dozens of warehouses. Guys, again, we're seeing this focus on profitability. The letter reads, the decision to accelerate profitability comes from our desire to act in the best interests of customers and shareholders in this changing macro environment. So, uh, Carl, I don't think this is the last we're going to hear of this, but this has been one of these hot startups that has raised quite a bit of money and, and built quickly. Yep, uh, they're starting to pile up, at least uh, anecdotally, these uh, reports and announcements of layoffs at companies of all different sizes. Uh, we're talking Microsoft a little bit earlier today. As for uh, the next 24 hours, guys, we'll get CPI tomorrow. Uh, Delta, as we slowly work our way toward the bank earnings uh, on Thursday and Friday, got a couple upgrades this week of uh, the likes of B of A and JPM this morning. Let's get to the judge in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.